I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, the latest science and research on our capacity to be spiritual and how maintaining a regular spiritual practice can lead to less depression and anxiety and maybe alter the way our brain functions. I use every lens I can get my hand on. MRI studies, genotyping studies, long-term clinical course studies. We develop new foundationally spiritually-based treatment to help awaken our natural spiritual awareness, what I now call the awakened brain. And is there a way to kickstart this process? What psychedelics can offer is a jumpstart, a welcome to the trailhead for a spiritual path. But there is a world of difference between an altered state that opens the door to awakened awareness and a fully integrated spiritual life. Dr. Lisa Miller of Columbia University on the science behind an awakened brain and how strengthening our spiritual selves can promote overall health and well-being. That's coming up on Life Examined. For millennia, the religions of the world have played a fundamental role in providing comfort and emotional well-being through rituals and practices. Think of songs, services, or prayers. Modernity has, and continues to, push faith aside. And our increasingly secular culture is changing the way most of us think about a spiritual practice. And while for some, traditional religion and spirituality go hand in hand, for others, feeling spiritually alive can also be prompted by acts of service, a hike in the woods, or sitting around the Thanksgiving table. And the good news is that according to psychologist Dr. Lisa Miller, whether you're a person of faith or not, practice meditation, or just embrace the wonders of the natural world, our capacity to experience a spiritual life is hardwired into our brains. It's in our neurocircuitry. We are all naturally spiritual beings. More importantly, the ability to tap into that spiritual part of ourselves and embrace a spiritual practice can benefit our mental health, ease depression, and generally make us feel good. Joining me now to talk about the intersection of neuroscience and spirituality is Lisa Miller, professor of clinical psychology at Columbia University and the author of The Awakened Brain, The New Science of Spirituality and Our Quest for an Inspired Life. Lisa Miller, welcome to Life Examined. It's great to have you. Jonathan, thank you for including me and really more largely thank you for holding this space in the center of our society right now for a deeper look into our precious lives. I'm really grateful to you for being a voice and being a space where we can think more profoundly about what we're doing here. I appreciate that. Well, well, let's jump in here because so much of what you do and your your fields of interest align with what we do. But but first, before we kind of get into the work, I want to get into you and, and kind of your background. I mean, I know you're a clinical psychologist, so you went through all the formal training, but but did you have any interest in spirituality or what, what was your upbringing when it came to religion or, or big questions of spirituality? So Jonathan, I was raised by a very loving, creative, skeptical academic father. He was a professor of theater and saw life as a symbolic reality, almost literally like a play. And I grew up in green rooms with my father. And the idea that life talks through symbols, as has been known through the humanities through the ages, was something quite real to me. I remember walking down the street downtown Boston and seeing a manhole. And it wasn't a manhole that led to the gutter. It was a manhole from which I thought would come a magnificent actor mm. in a white robe. You know, So mm -hmm. life was symbolically alive. Um, and yet he was also curious and um, very skeptical, but also used all faculties of knowing. My father used his intuitive heart. He used his mystical 
symbolic mind. He used, you know, he was a professor, his logic and empiricism. My mom was a deeply spiritual woman. Um, I would almost call her sort of a plain clothes shaman, profoundly spiritually connected. You know, we would head out, this was the 70s, 80s, to go to a new place, uh, visit a new friend without a map. And I'd say, well, mom, how do, how do we know how we're going to get there? And she'd say, well, you can kind of just feel it. <laughs> so she was really in a dynamic dialogue with life. Um, our faith tradition, I was raised Jewish, and it was a Judaism full of spirituality. My family were Reformed Jews, and my mom would take me to you know, Shabbat service on a Saturday morning at a huge temple in the Midwest, probably 400 seats. And Jonathan, on most Saturdays, there'd be maybe four people in the front, you know, and then my mother and me. And she sang the prayers in my face. She had tears in her eyes, feeling the sanctity of, you know, whether you say God or spirit or Hashem, she felt the presence. And I knew in my mother's eyes that God, the spirit, the deeper presence in life was real. Mm. You used a really interesting phrase there, a religion filled with spirituality, which I think teases out some uh, really big concepts that you look at. Um, because, you know, we, we hear these terms now, well, I'm, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual, or the other way around. Maybe you could kind of explain that a little bit more and what, what you were getting at when you said that. So joining you here now today, as a clinical scientist, we have a very clear, elegant way of disentangling spirituality and religion through the lens of an epidemiological twin study. Mm. A twin study can determine the extent to which any human capacity is inborn versus environmentally formed. For instance, our temperament is half inborn, half environmentally formed, whether we're extroverted or introverted. The capacity through which we experience spiritual life is innate. It is one-third heritable, two-thirds environmentally formed, which means that every single person on earth, just as we're physical, emotional, cognitive beings, is born a naturally spiritual being. Religion, on the other hand, is 100% environmentally transmitted, whether it is through the sacred text, the ceremony, the community, the ritual. These are gifts of our environment. These are gifts of our parents and grandparents. If we choose a faith tradition, the community, religion and spirituality go hand in hand for many people, but you can see they are two different things. For 70% of people in the United States, give or take, they will say my spiritual life is held in my faith tradition. So it is through the prayers that I was taught by my parents, or it is through the meditation as I've cultivated it through my new tradition that I experience spiritual life. And for 30% of people, give or take, there is a tendency to say I'm spiritual, but I am not religious. It is in nature that I feel spiritually alive and connected. It is perhaps with my family at Thanksgiving mm. or in acts of service. Whether or not we are religious, we are all naturally spiritual beings, which means that this is a deep core capacity that needs to be nourished, as does any other foundational human capacity. I love the way you talked about how religion for many could be the framework for the experience of the spiritual. So maybe you can put just even more words around then 
whatever the process of spirituality is, is it a psychological state? Is it an emotional state? Is it a set of questions? What would you say to that? Again, through the lens of clinical science, if we take a twin study and take that very same concept of innate spirituality and put it into an MRI study, Mm. we see that this natural seat of spiritual awareness has neural correlates. And even more specifically, neural correlates that potentiate two very specific and important dimensions of human lived spiritual life that are game-changing onto the rest of our lives. So the innate spirituality with which we are all endowed has two dimensions. The first is the capacity for a transcendent relationship to be able to see and feel into the deeper nature of life. The transcendent relationship can downstream be told in different ways depending on our religious cultural traditions. Broadly put in the frame of Ken Wilbur, it can be told in the first, second, or third person, which means this deep transcendent relationship, which we are all hardwired to perceive, could be felt as a sense of oneness with all life, as in our Eastern traditions, Mm. or many people say, my cathedral is the forest where I feel a oneness with all creation. It can be told in the second person, I turn to God for guidance and receive and perceive an answer, a dialogue. Or it can be told in the third person, as is often found in our rich indigenous traditions, spirit, Wananichi, force of life, creator is in and through sun and earth and water and crow. Whether we speak of the deep transcendent relationship in the first, second, or third person, in all cases, our innate spiritual capacity is a seat of perception. It is not merely a belief, but whether we speak in the first, second, or third person about the transcendent relationship, it emanates from a deep seat of perception. Spiritual life is a capacity to perceive the deeper nature of life. Mm. The second dimension of lived human spirituality that is game-changing onto the rest of our lives is just as we are built to be able to see and know a transcendent relationship, one that is loving, guiding, holding, never leaves us alone. We are built to feel the presence of the transcendent relationship in our love for one another one another human beings, and one another living beings. The first is, if you will, a transcendent relationship. The second dimension is the presence of the transcendent in the imminent, to feel the love, the presence of the transcendent, and our love for one another, fellow human beings, fellow living beings. These two forms of spiritual relationship go hand in hand. And in most faith traditions, we hear lessons such as what you do to one another, you do to me. Mm. What I find particularly profound is that as we've moved into MRI studies, looking at the neural correlates of our capacity, of our innate capacity for transcendent relationship, we see that the same circuits that sustain our awareness of a transcendent relationship are the same circuits with 85% overlap that allow us to perceive and feel the transcendent in our love for one another. Both forms of relational spirituality, our relationship to our higher power or source of life, 
is the same neurodocking station through which we feel the sanctity, the dignity, the ultimate significance of our fellow human beings and fellow living beings. And I'm really fascinated thinking about how far we trace this back in the story of human life, because my sense is it goes back thousands of years. And then the question also becomes, like, what's the, the biological or evolutionary function of this part of us? Is that even something we can answer? I, I'd love any thoughts on that. I often think that we're able to see chairs and tables and trees and potholes so that we don't trip or bump into things, that we are able to perceive so that we might navigate life with fuller awareness. The seat of perception through which we feel guidance that we're held, the seat of perception through which we feel a spiritual connection is also a capacity of awareness through which we better navigate life. What that argument suggests is that we are perceiving something real, that there is indeed a force in and through life, and that force is present as we behold and dignify one another as fellow souls on earth. And when we awaken to this deep presence in and through life, we awaken to something real. The proof is in the pudding. The proof is in the traction that we have in walking through life awake. When we are spiritually awake, we navigate life far better. You would eventually become a clinical psychologist. And I, I'm, I'm, I want to hear a little bit about what the field of psychology would think about some of these questions of spirituality. And for some reason, Carl Jung keeps coming to mind here. You started the conversation talking about symbols. This was a man who studied symbols or believed deeply in you know, uh, the unconscious or collective unconscious or questions of, of synchronicity. That's a word I've heard you use before too. Does he have a role in this or other psychologists in terms of how we begin to link an academic field like psychology to that of religion or spirituality? Oh, Jonathan, it is such a deep running point that Carl Jung early on pointed out the difference between the small S self and the big capital S self, that the small S self was really sort of the hermetically sealed you know, ego level self, mm. where, you know, in all fairness, we do spend a lot of time in K-12 school and university, really in our public square, cultivating the distinct atomistic self. But there is ever so immediate to all of us, a large capital S self, the self that's part of the larger arena of life, the self that is part and parcel of the fabric of the greater reality. And I think that one of Jung's greatest contributions was that he helped us see that much of suffering and depression and limitation really lives at the seat of perception, that when I am locked within my atomistic, ego-driven self, I've basically set myself up in that perceptual cage to feel isolated and alone. But it is within every one of us to shift our seat of perception to be able to perceive our oneness with the greater field of life. It is how we are now built, and we can track it in MRIs, to see that we are part of the larger 
landscape of reality. We are not in the forest, we're part of the forest. We are not, we don't have a family, we are of a family and a family of life. There is so much more to us than our little world and the stuff we have and don't have, all that we've accomplished and not accomplished. That notion of a limited self is driving us into despair. And I actually see depression as it is most commonly experienced, at least two thirds of the time, as a disidentification with the larger field of life. Can you go on more about that? Because I know for you, there's a really important correlation between depression and the small s self. So, so continue on that, that line of thought for a little bit. So, you know, Jonathan, when I started out as a clinical psychologist, I started on an inpatient unit in New York hmm. with people who were suffering tremendously. And this wasn't their first round of depression. Many people had been in three, five, 15 times to the inpatient unit. And so very bright, well-trained therapists on the unit, giving the best that we had, well, this patient simply were not getting better in a meaningful way. So I started listening to the patients. And what I heard was, Dr. Miller, will you come here? Dr. Miller, step out of your office a minute. Dr. Miller, could we just step down the hall? And we'd walk down the you know very fluorescent lit hall. Could we just duck in here, the kitchen, actually back here, the pantry. So standing by the pots and pans, Dr. Miller, I have a request. Will you pray with me? Well, the fact that we had to go to the pots and pans closet suggested that that felt somehow forbidden or disintegrated from treatment. The fact that that was a deep and sincere request from the bottom of her heart said to me that that was what she needed. That is what she needed more than any therapy as it had been delivered and trained into our mental health field. And so after that occurred over and over and over again, in fact, Jung's very idea of the small S and the big S, capital S self, was explained to me by a gentleman with severe schizophrenia this fellow, when Dr. Miller, will you come here? And come here, hidden away, meant behind the door in the corner of the unit. Dr. Miller, I have, I have to explain something to you. You see, there's two worlds. There's little t, the world, and there's big t, the world. Little t, the world, is where, you know, we go about our work and I will take the subway and I have to make a check to pay the rent. And well, when things just get too painful in the little t world, that's when I go into big t, the world, where Mother Mary is my mother and I am Jesus. He was explaining to me that his movement from walking what most people would call reality into a mystical, symbolic, transcendent reality was one which he purposefully and in some type of emotionally driven way would slip and slide rather than chart and know where he was because it hurt too much to be in the world of emotional injury. The unit of reality where the symbolic is the language of truth is there for all of us and it's real and it's sacred, it's loving, it's guiding. The gentleman who was struggling with schizophrenia was letting me know that he was confusing which level of reality he was on 
as a way to make his pain mitigate. Hmm. And I know that that experience, when you were working with those patients, there was another really important story surrounding a Yom Kippur ceremony as well that maybe you could tell us about it. This was another example of of your patients bringing you into their world of spirituality, and, and you noticed something quite quite amazing. Can you can you tell us that story? Early on in my career, I was on an inpatient unit with people who were in tremendous pain, recurrent major depression, bipolar in a way that had upended and made chaos out of their lives. It was a unit where there were a great number of Jewish people and also Jewish therapists in New York. And when the high holidays rolled around, specifically when Yom Kippur rolled around, at our community meeting, a gentleman raised his hand very high. This fellow was someone who'd struggled with bipolar. I actually hadn't realized he was Jewish until he asked the question, hey docs, Yom Kippur is coming up. What's planned for the service? Well, the gracious, you know, very hardworking unit chief sort of looked left and right and looked over to the clergy and it turned out there was nothing planned. And in fact, many of the people who might have provided the service were, were to be home with their family. The patient with bipolar felt very distressed. What? No, no Yom Kippur service? Why no Yom Kippur service? And this deprivation accelerated and exacerbated his frustration, his symptoms, and he exploded, got up, walked out of the meeting. And as I looked across the room, there was another patient, a Jewish woman with recurrent, severe recurrent major depression. And she looked very, very sad and started to slump and lean over. And I just could see there was a call, please, where is our Yom Kippur service? So I pulled the unit chief aside and I said, listen, I'm not a rabbi, I'm a clinical psychologist, but I've been to two decades of Yom Kippur services. May I facilitate a Yom Kippur service? Well, sure, if you want to. So I show up on Yom Kippur. I've brought my grandmother's prayer book with me. And Jonathan, it was the most moving experience of my life. I walk onto the unit on Yom Kippur Day through the fluorescent lit hall. I walk into the kitchen where our ceremony is to be. And all of the Jewish patients have dressed up. They have asked or called home they're not in their gurneys, and there's a sense of specialness that today is sacred. Sit down, there's an anticipation, a sanctity in our kitchen with the linoleum table in front of us. And as we start to say the prayers that we've said, all of us, same prayers every year, a rhythm sets in, and we become very quickly one community. And we sing the prayers, we sing the prayers, and there's a rhythm, a davening. The gentleman with bipolar, I quickly realize, is holding the body of our ceremony. It's he who's tapping the table and knows the prayers very best of all and is really carrying all of us through. He's the closest to the rabbi in the room. In fact, the most so-called fractured, the most so-called disorganized patient on the unit is shepherding us through the Yom Kippur service. So we hit a pause, I look around the room, and I said, instead of a sermon, how about if we were to go around and share what Yom Kippur today means to each of us? And the very first to lean in 
was the woman with profound recurrent major depression, a woman so full of shame and so full of guilt. And she sat up tall and said, you know, I've always known that on Yom Kippur, we could ask for forgiveness. But sitting here now with you all saying these prayers, I know we can actually be forgiven. There was a brightness, a Jonathan, a numinousness, the lights had powered back on in the eyes of each Jewish patient. There was a sense that whatever the diagnosis of the individual patient might be, in this moment on Yom Kippur, their light shined bright and their ways were equal and opposite. They were free of the cage of the limitations of their ego. They were free from the small s self, and they had joined the larger capital S self, the field of life, the sacred connection. I came back the next day. The woman who struggled with her current depression knocked on my office door and said, Dr. Miller, I just wanted to remind you, you can actually be forgiven. I said, thank you. The effects of the Yom Kippur service, I would say, had a half-life of about two days. So in two days, there was still the light, but the cage, the prison house of the ego was setting back. In four days, it was about three quarters gone. There needed to be a sustained engagement of spiritual awareness in order for each patient to shine beyond the limitations of the cage. And so, Jonathan, that became my life's work to figure out in, I use every lens I can get my hand on, MRI studies, genotyping studies, long-term clinical course studies. We develop new foundationally spiritually-based treatment to help awaken our natural spiritual awareness, what I now call the awakened brain that is in every single one of us. And in fact, we now know through MRI studies that there is one awakened brain. There is one universal spiritual brain, and we all have it. Mm. Now, I, I love that story, and I am also sitting with kind of what the mainstream psychological approach is to mental disorders. You know more than me, but you know, from a psychiatric standpoint, we think about it you know, as, as an imbalance of neurotransmitters, dopamine, norepinephrine, serotonin, right? Th things of that nature, all of which you're not prescribing in this case. But, but I'm wondering, what do you think is happening cognitively such that one is feeling a, a, a decrease in these symptoms of mental disorders through a spiritual practice? Like what, how do we understand the, the how or the why here in terms of the function of a spiritual practice in terms of a treatment of a mental disorder? So Jonathan, we looked very fine-grained precisely at this important question you raise. What are the neurocorrelates? What is in this seat of an awakened perception? when it comes as charted through an MRI study. And so we published in Oxford University Press Cerebral Cortex a study that showed that whether I am Hindu, Jewish, Muslim, Catholic, Christian, spiritual, but not religious, we all engage the same neurocorrelates 
as we perceive a transcendent relationship, whether we say that I feel at one with all life in the forest, or I talk to God, my higher power, and receive guidance, direction, or I feel the presence of the force of life, our creator, in and through all nature. No matter how we understand the transcendent relationship across our beautiful faith traditions, across our cultures, and those who are spiritual but not religious in their own unique practice, we all engage the same neurocorrelates as we experience and know a transcendent relationship. And they are threefold. Every one of us engages the bonding network, just as we were loved and held as children in our parents' arms. The bonding network is engaged and we perceive that we are loved and held. There is a shift in our attention network from the top-down dorsal to the bottom-up ventral, from I've got to have it, why did I not get it? How could I have not gotten into medical school? Why did he or she or they not say yes to my request? Why? Why? Why is this happening to me? That narrow top-down, how do I get what I want? Why did I not get what I want? To, whoa, whoa, the floodlights just went back on. Life became reanimated, ventral, bottom-up attention, where suddenly I realized it is a gorgeous day, or my child has been looking at me for 20 minutes, or did you see in the front yard? There's a whole family of geese. Suddenly the world is reanimated. And many people say a new opening pops. We are loved, held, we are guided. And the third dimension of our awakened brain is that the parietal that puts in and out hard boundaries so that as I say to my Columbia students, we know we are a point and we are a wave, that we are distinct and unique, atomistic, magnificently diverse, different GPS coordinates, and part of one field of life, white, white caps on one ocean, Thich Nhat Hanh's notion of interbeing, white caps on one ocean, part of one family of life. We are a point, we are a wave. The parietal that puts in and out hard boundaries lets us see and know that we are never alone. I could be walled off on quarantine with COVID. I could be far from my family. I could be a distinctly you know, alienated, lonely, rather isolated person. And at the very same instant, I am at the deepest level, my heart knows, part of the unitive reality. I am part of the forest. I am part of the family of life. And I'm part of my family of origin. So we're loved, held, guided, and we are never alone. Those three dimensions, loved, held, guided and never alone are the three pillars, really the triad of perception of the awakened brain. That is why our birthright of an awakened brain allows us to perceive that we are part of the larger family of life. The awakened brain allows us to know that we are never alone and that in our toughest moment, no matter how despairing and unloved and unworthy I might feel, I'm actually part of this extraordinary life presence. I'm actually not out of direction, not out of luck. There will be a double door opening soon. We don't live in a box. We live in a living universe. Actually, Jonathan, could we do 
what I call the road of life, a practice that I think for many people helps reveal their own awakened brain that they've been using so far. Yes, I'd love that. Yeah. I'm going to invite you to close your eyes, take five breaths, clear out your inner space. I invite you to think of a time where you wanted something so badly, it was yours. You researched it, you strategized A plus B plus C, and you were right. That red door was yours. It could have been a job, an internship, a promotion, an admission to a graduate school or college. It could have been him, her, them to say yes, to take interest. You did everything right. A plus B plus C. You went for that red door, grabbed the handle, but it was stuck. And you can't believe it stuck because you had done everything right, 98%. You kick it. You're surprised. It doesn't make sense. In time, perhaps disappointed to the point of depressed. It was not what you had wanted. But only because that red door is stuck, you have no choice. You pivot 20, 40, 110 degrees. And over there, over there is a bright, shining, yellow door. A wide open, shining, yellow door. You cross through and on the other side is someone who makes you feel alive, who's more right for you. Is a job that brought forward capacity and ability, a talent you didn't even know you had, was a school where you found a mentor that opened up a whole landscape of opportunity in your life. That yellow door that has so much to do with who you are and where you are today, that bright, shining, open yellow door. You might have said you didn't know yellow doors existed or that didn't know yellow doors were available. What's a yellow door? That door was not what you had wanted. It was better and better for you in your road of life. And as you sit back now and you think of that stuck red door, you think that hairpin turn that leads you to the wide open yellow door that has everything to do with who you are and where you are today. Was there anyone there at that hairpin turn? It could have been a parent, a grandparent, a counselor. It could have been someone you met for two minutes at the coffee shop or at a party who pointed the way at that hairpin turn to the wide open yellow door. It could have been a story they told, information, something from their own life. They were a trail angel pointing the way. And now as you sit way back, stuck red door, hairpin turned trail angel, and wide open yellow door that has everything to do with who you are and where you are today, how really are the most important part of our lives found? Is it narrowly through planning and tactic and research? Yes, those skills are important. But might they be alone insufficient? to find the deepest, greatest parts of our lives? Are we not narrowly makers of our path, but more fully discoverers of our journey? And now finally sitting way back, stuck red door, hairpin turned, trail angel, wide open yellow door, 
that has so much to do with who you are and where you are today. Where in your road of life is your higher power? Where is there a force in and through life? Is the force of life the universe, who I call God, in the wide open yellow door and the stuck red door? Is your higher power the force in the trail angel and your capacity to be open and awakened in dialogue with the deeper nature of life? Is it possible that you have been on an awakened path all along in your walk? You're listening to Life Examined on KCRW. I'm Jonathan Bastian, and my guest this hour is Dr. Lisa Miller, professor of clinical psychology at Columbia University and the author of The Awakened Brain, The New Science of Spirituality and Our Quest for an Inspired Life. And that practice you just heard can be found in the new book, and you can also find it on YouTube. Still to come, can psychedelics help kickstart your spirituality? We'll get to that right after this short break. And a reminder that you can find us on Facebook, where we'd love to hear from you. You can find a link to that at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined, or you can connect with me directly on Instagram. I'm at Jonathan W. Bastian, where you'll find weekly videos and other content that we're working on throughout the week. We'll be back after this short break. Stay close. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. In the first half of the conversation, we heard Dr. Lisa Miller talk about our inborn ability to be spiritual. She shared her own experiences growing up and anecdotes from patients she worked with. Before the break, she led a short practice called The Road of Life, in which she questions our assumptions over what we can and cannot control. As we rejoin the conversation, I'm curious to get her thoughts on the use of psychedelics and how might they help spiritually. Let's dive back in. I wonder how you feel about other modes of healing that are suddenly getting traction as well. Psychedelic therapy right now is all the rage, right? And and some of the theories behind it being that the qualities of an awakened brain or of a mystical experience or of a unitive reality are also possible within those experiences. And I know that, you know, a lot of a lot of research questions maybe long-term impacts of it or or you know where it will ultimately take us. But how do you see those modalities as well kind of working either with or against many of the things that you're talking about today? So our awakened brain is available. It's a quarter inch under the surface, whether it's through prayer or meditation or a walk in nature. And indeed, through plant medicine, we can engage our awakened brain. This jump-starting of our awakened awareness can be the trailhead of a spiritual journey. What psychedelics can offer to those for whom it's right in their own path is a jump start, is an opening, a welcome to the trailhead for a spiritual path. But the answer then is not to go back and touch the stone three weeks later. There's a world of difference between an altered state used to jump start awakened awareness and further down the path, a fully integrated, further down the path, a whole spiritual life. 
So there is a world of difference between an altered state that opens the door to awakened awareness and a fully integrated spiritual life. Jump-starting our spiritual awareness can be the trailhead. It can be an opening. And there are many people who've come to me and said, you know, I was so tightly wound. I was so buttoned up. I was so lodged in the air and water of our culture, which is it's only real if you can touch it, a sort of radical materialism. And psychedelics kicked open the door of my perception, and I now see into the deeper layer of life. Psychedelics awakened my awareness. To whom I say, wonderful, and now you are at the trailhead of a spiritual journey. This is a tremendous sacred quest. And to that immediate experience, can be added the other legs of the stool, a practice to get back to the transcendent reality. Again, meditation, prayer, connection in and through nature, ritual, a way to get back to the deep seat of awakened awareness. Mm. Also to be added as a community, whether it's the Sangha, the Mingyan, the fellowship, at Columbia we call them the journey group, a practice and a community through which there's practice can sustain the third precious leg of the stool, which is the direct transcendent relationship, the opening of our awakened brain to see into the deeper force, the deeper nature in life through which we're loved, held, guided, and never alone. Yes, the trees are alive. Yes, fellow living beings are alive. Yes, your so-called enemy and your so-called friend are both emanations of God. You've seen the face of God in your friend and you've seen the face of God in your so-called once enemy. Can you now integrate your spiritual awareness? Can you now integrate this blast of awakened awareness into a fully integrated spiritual life? And the three legs of the stool, a practice of transcendence, a community through which to share transcendent reality and the direct connection with the sacred, a direct awakened connection to the transcendent. These are the three legs. We need all three for a stable stool. And every tradition through time has embraced all three legs of the stool, has relied on all three legs of the stool. For me, it's so interesting having this conversation with you actually at this, this very moment. As just late last night, I returned from three days out in the Utah desert riding bikes through the National Park Canyonlands, a 100-mile ride with a group of men, some of which were Navy SEALs that have been mm. deployed multiple times abroad. And, and there was this sense of a group of people being in one of the most beautiful places in the world, using our bodies in a way that felt healthy, but also in communication and with a sh shared sense of experience among all of us, we were there together to experience the awe and beauty of the place. And, you know, the, the feeling of returning is almost as if you are high in a way, like as if something has been switched on in your brain. And I, I share that experience as a way to say that maybe for some nature and community are ways that we can think about this as well, that there's, there's a correlative with experiences similar to that, that perhaps what you're saying as well. Oh, Jonathan, it's so important that that feeling shared amongst 
this group of intense, physically engaged, athletic men in the sanctity of the Utah desert taps into something felt, perceives something real. The majesty, the guidance, the awakening of perceiving the force in and through nature, this is real. There has been an unfortunate tendency in academia, academic medicine, to somehow eviscerate the meaning that is written into life. The actual spirit is perceived in nature. There is nothing more rigorous, there is nothing more so-called scientific in out of hand eviscerating meaning. In fact, it's rather unscientific to assume that something has no meaning without examining it. There's a world of difference between science has shown something to not be true and, oh, science didn't look. We are built as knowers with multiple organic epistemologies, inborn ways of knowing. And just as we have in our inner table a knower who is a logician, we all have a logician, we all have an empiricist, well, so too we all have an intuitive, a mystic, and yes, a skeptic, all working together. And in fact, when we engage all forms of knowing, I receive an inspiration of the heart, a profound mystical experience. I suddenly know I'm part of one reality, a unit of experience. I'm one with all life. What does that mean to discern that with logic and see this new map of reality, a unit of reality play out empirically. When we engage all forms of knowing, we literally interconnect regions of the brain. We have a more innovative, creative, adaptive brain. The skeptic right there at the table can fuel inquiry, can ultimately deepen our certainty and our intuitive or mystical perception. The skeptic, however, is not the bouncer at the door. To throw out an intuitive experience, a mystical gift, a priori is not rigorous. It is unexamined. The skeptic can sit right there at the table with the intuitive mystic empiricist and logician and help propel the inquiry, the quest. Jonathan, may I invite you into a practice using the awakened brain? Yes, I'd love that because I think we're just about nearing kind of the end of our conversation today. And I was, this is exactly what I was hoping. So maybe you can kind of take us out with that. That would be wonderful. Jonathan, I invite you into a practice. This is a 90 second practice that engages your own awakened brain. I invite you to take five breaths, clear out your inner space. This is a practice taught to me, as I always thank my teachers, by the late Dr. Gary Weaver, whose life work was to help people reconnect with the deep transcendent presence in us, through us, and among us. I invite you to close your eyes, clear out your inner space, take five breaths. I invite you to set before you a table. This is your table. And to your table, you may invite anyone, living or deceased, who truly has your best interest in mind. Anyone, living or deceased, who truly has your best interest in mind. 
And with them all sitting there, ask them if they love you. And now you may invite your higher self, the part of you that is so much more than anything you may have done or not done, anything you may have or not have, your true, eternal, higher self. And ask you if you love you. And now finally, you may invite your higher power. Whatever word is yours, however you know, universe, God, force, whatever understanding is yours, your higher power. And ask if they love you. And now with all of those people sitting there right now, what do they need to share? What do they need to tell you now? What do you need to know? Well, Dr. Lisa Miller, thank you so much for sharing that with us. I think we all have. This is our birthright. Every one of us, we know through the lens of science, every one of us has an awakened brain through which we can engage the transcendent relationship in and through one another, our highest self, and our higher power. This is our birthright. It can never be taken away. To your question, Jonathan, what's the difference between religion and spirituality? Our innate awakened brain Our inborn spiritual, natural spirituality allows us to be loved and held and guided, every one of us, and never be alone. This is who we are. And when we engage this seat of perception, we realize that loneliness and separateness and fracturedness and splinteredness in our society is nothing more than an ailment of perception. Well, it's been so wonderful to be joined by Lisa Miller this hour, professor of clinical psychology at Columbia University and the author of The Awakened Brain, The New Science of Spirituality in Our Quest for an Inspired Life. Lisa, thank you so much for being with us, sharing these practices and your research and insight. I've I've really enjoyed it. Jonathan, thank you for connecting so deeply today, here, now, and in all of your work. All right, that's it for this week. The producer of our show is Andrea Brody. And thanks for listening to this week's conversation about spirituality and the links to mental well-being. We know this show was a little bit different and maybe a little bit more experiential, but we hope you enjoyed taking the journey with us. And as always, we value your thoughts on the show. So please share any experiences or reflections that came up. Did you do some of these guided meditations? How did they feel to you? We value this community. Let's keep this conversation going in our Facebook group. You can find a link to that group at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined or by searching in Facebook for KCRW Life Examined. And don't forget that if this show or any of our shows was particularly meaningful to you, tell your friends. Share the show via text or social. That's been the way this show has grown person by 
person. You can connect with me directly on Instagram. I'm at Jonathan W. Bastion, and there you'll find weekly videos. And speaking of other weekly content, we hope you've been enjoying the Midweek Reset, which drops every Wednesday in your podcast feed. This is Life Examined on KCRW. I'm Jonathan Bastion. Have a wonderful day. We'll see you next week.